Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. The show that's always interesting, usually funny, and mostly true. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, and everyone's best friend. Now, I'm super excited because sitting in the co-host seat today, right next to me, 1,500 miles away, is John King, the crappie hippie. John, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, indeed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Clay. Yeah, we're super happy. And, and you're here for an important, and a very important reason. We'll get that in a minute. But here's what you can expect on tonight's show. First of all, we're going to start with talking about the crappie hippie's new Kickstarter project. We'll get deep in that. Don't worry. We've got some exciting news. <clears throat> then, this is actually really cool. Uh, Rhett Talbot, who's a, uh, a writer, a science writer, and uh, Doc Martin, who's our, uh, who's our fish doctor here on the show, are with us. And they're going to talk all about the grip and grin. Is catching a fish, taking a selfie, and letting it go good for the fish? So that's we're going to dive deep in that. John and I will give our opinions on that. And, of course, we're going to hear what Doc Martin and uh, Rhett have to say about it. And they're going to give us some science, some data, and we'll be able to take that home. And hopefully, I mean, the, the old goal is always is make sure we're treating fish well and treat each other well. So hopefully we can learn a little something from that. John. Yes, sir. You're here. I'm here. All right. Hey, before we get even get into your Kickstarter, I, I, I actually want to jump on the topic a little bit. Tell me about your catch and release strategy for fish. You're going to catch a fish, you're going to take a photo, and let it go. What's your process? Um, boy, a lot of it depends on the day, the temperature, what's going on, the size of the fish. A lot of times, what if I'm fishing fish? by myself, right. yeah, I don't. A lot of times, I won't even take them out of the water. I just reach down with flyers and just just let them go. You know, um, now I've become a social media victim. I'm trying to develop a tackle company. I'm I'm trying to get you know my name out there. Uh, I'll pull them out. Um, I just recently put a film up on the fish nerds uh, group page, you know, kind of shows my strategy. I whip those bass out of the water. I take one picture and they go right back in. Um, you've got to be cognizant of the size of the fish, what temperature you're pulling them out, you know, a hot summer day, what have you like that. Um, as usual, I'm really ambivalent. If I was all about fish, I'd say don't even do it. But on the other hand, compared, you know, I'm old, Clay. I'm from the days where they used to hang fish on a fish board and mm -hmm. uh, then just throw them in the trash. Welcome um, to New Hampshire. That's New Hampshire uh, fishing in the wintertime. That's how we do all of our ice fishing tournaments. It, that's exactly the, the, the technique. So it's not changed. No, and it's sad. I mean, it's sad. It sad. Um, um, so, you know, I feel like I've come a long ways from that, but um, uh, we have a great... Uh, guy that contributes a lot to the page, Tim Grubb, and we were, he and I were chit-chatting, and I said, you know, I haven't waited to fish in 40 years. Um, I do photograph them. Um, I don't want to hurt the big ones. Um, I want to preserve that gene pool, but on the other hand, um, we do want to preserve that memory, and we can't, you know, it doesn't do us a whole lot of good to taxidermize all of them. <laughs> yeah, and the, the, the challenge, and you see this now, is you are – you are trying to make a living. You're trying to make money in the fishing industry, right? Indeed. 
And believe it or not, gripping grins, gripping grins is part of the profit motive. If you don't have a fishy photo, no one cares about your lures. No, they don't. They, they, word of mouth is essential, and having a reputation as being able to fish is essential. Mm -hmm. uh, to proving the worth of, of your lures, a very competitive business, super tight market. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, you know, show that these lures work and uh, uh, show it visually, it's really hard to make a sale. Yeah. Now, I did, I did photograph your, a fish in the water with your lure in its mouth, so I think that's probably okay. <laughs> so, but, but it's hard out there. I mean, I'm, as a guide, I'm dragging shiny hooks through the water at two miles an hour, I'm hooking a fish that's down 50 feet deep. As soon as it hooks, it, it rises to the surface from 40-degree water to 68-degree water, and I'm dragging it into the boat, exhausting the fish. Arguably, I am not being kind to those fish. I, I think it's a fair case anyone can make that I am not good to the fishes. Uh, and so it's really difficult to release a fish that you've caught on a troll. I would argue that... A, hard, a higher percentage of fish trolled released die than those caught in a traditional method. Um, and that's something I'm having to square with. I'm trying really hard to release them well. I know for sure I've killed a number of lake trout that were undersized this year. And it's kind of a challenge we deal with every day, especially as uh, you're an influencer, right? What? <laughs> an influencer? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Under the influence? Under the influence. That's my Absolutely. least favorite phrase is influencer. But it comes up in discussion later with, uh, with Rhett and, and, uh, and Doc Martin. So um, it's, it's a whole interesting thing. And I think what I want to do is introduce a contest for October. Uh, so this October, we just wrapped up our June conference last week's show, con conference, contest, and last week's show. So this October's contest, I want listeners who want to win a Fish Nerds prize package, I want you to call the Fish Nerds hotline, 607-378-FISH, and you guys say your name. It's really important because last, in last week's show, there was a, a young fella who didn't, <laughs> didn't tell us his name, uh, but tell us your name, and then I want to hear the most unethical thing you've ever seen while fishing. And I'll give you an example, John. Uh, I was fishing on a charter boat, so I'll do the, the call. Beep, boop, beep, boop, 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 boop. <clears throat> Hello, fish nerds. Uh, this is Clay Groves. Uh, the most unethical thing I ever saw while fishing is I saw a charter boat captain uh, catch a dogfish and put a firecracker in his mouth and throw him in the back in the ocean. Uh, and because of that, I didn't tip him, and I won't recommend him or say his name on the show or ever hire him for, for anything. So I'm, I'm oh. from New Hampshire. Can, is it my turn? Yep. You do yours. Uh, the most unethical thing I ever saw, a guy that owns a prominent tackle company, and I won't name names, I guess, but uh, I saw I was up on God's River in Manitoba, and the guide caught a brook trout over five pounds. Um, I urged the guide to release it. He did. The trout was exhausted, swam down to the bottom of the river, lay there to rest. The water was crystal clear. The uh, tackle company owner reached down with a net, scooped the trout up, posed with it, pretended he caught it, and then instead of releasing it, he put it on a stringer to mount and put in his office. Oh, boy. So all full of lies. So anyway, call the Fish Nerds hotline, 607-378-FISH. Tell us what your most unethical thing is for bonus points. Tell us what you did about it, if anything. Most of us just don't do anything, and that's uh, the reality of, of life. 
But uh, if you did something about it, let us know that as well. Don't forget to tell us your name and where you're from. If you don't tell me your name, I can't tell you you won. <laughs> so it's sure. hard to send you your prize pack. That's right. You have to send it to everybody in the United States. And yeah. <laughs> that makes it tough, really tough. Really, it's expensive. Uh, for sure, I know in the October prize package, there'll be a Fish Nerds beanie, a fleece-lined beanie uh, made from 100% fur-bearing trout fur. Uh, and we'll throw in some uh, Fish Nerds decals, handful of cool lures I've collected. And John, I don't know if you want to add to that prize at all. Of course, I'm going to add to the prize at all. You tell me what you need, man. We're going to send you up some glass water angling, uh, angle kings, and uh, crappie doodler ought to be close to being out. If it's not out already, I'll send him some jigs. Uh, We'll send some glass water stuff up because we love contributing to the uh, fish nerd contest. You know we do. Perfect. And we'll have more information. We'll talk about this every week through October. Contest ends the last week of October. So the first show in November, we'll announce the winner on that show. So get those calls in, 607-378-FISH for all uh, your contest <laughs> entries. All right, John, I'm, I'm really excited for you because you're about to launch your Kickstarter campaign for your new lure. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, we've got a new lure coming out called the Crappie Dueler, and we run a Kickstarter campaign to help us p- cover the production costs because that's a lot of money out before you get any money coming back in. And uh, we're going to give our Kickstarter backers first crack at the lure. Uh, they're going to get it at a discounted price, um, tying up some uh, lead-free jigs also to offer us rewards. We're going to have some t-shirts. We're going to have a koozie, uh, some kits. We're going to have all kinds of groovy stuff. Uh, we just hope that everybody will do either of two things, either one or both. Uh, tune into Kickstarter and get a reward or two or more or whatever, at whatever level you can afford. And um, if you can't do that, then please just put it out there, put it out there, put it out there. And if you can do both, that would be terrific. And just so you know, we have lots of people that do not fish, but uh, we offer rewards in terms of t-shirts and stuff. And our logo is so cool and groovy. It's worth wearing whether you've ever wet a line or not. You can get a tee. You can get whatever, but get it for yourself, get it for a loved one. Um, But please check us out because when you support us, you're supporting lead-free fishing, which in turn supports a cleaner, greener world. It's really important. And and in New Hampshire, we're really ahead of the curve on lead-free fishing. We're we're a lead-free state. Um, And and we're hoping to see everyone else come behind. So this is like you're at the tip of the iceberg for this market, John, and I'm excited for you. And, and, of course, you know the Fish Nerds are going to support this project all the way through. I know for sure the Fish Nerd Nation is going to pony up and throw some money on the table. An important thing with things like Kickstarter or Patreon or any of these things, the idea is from a little comes a lot. So if every listener, we have about 3,000 people a week now turning into this show, which is really good. Um, but if every listener just throws in a couple of bucks, that gets us there. It gets the product to where John needs it to be. Uh, and it's, it's really exciting for us. So... Um, you can go to Kickstarter. Glasswater Angling presents the Crappie Dueler. So go on kickstarter.com, then just put that in the search box. It ought to pop our project right up. And mm-hmm. please, 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 if you listen to this show, get in on the Facebook group, the Fish Nerds Facebook group, because we have a world of fun over there. Mm-hmm. Post all kinds of stuff. Our correspondents are posting stuff every single day. And uh, 
all kinds of science. All, you know, post your big fish picture. It doesn't matter. Don't be yeah. intimidated. It's yeah, a, even if you held it wrong, post it. Well, we might teach you, but <laughs> do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, do it anyway. I mean, you know, uh, you don't have a better excuse to screw off at work than to tune in to the Fish Nerds Facebook group and catch up on all the teasing and all the jokes and all the fun that goes on there. We have guys promoting their YouTube channel. We have people mm -hmm. talking about, oh, we had this cool picture of this rat fish come in. I never seen such a thing that jumped out of my chair. That's I mean, awesome. it's really neat to see what other nerdy science minded fish minded folks. And of course, one of the best features we have on the fish nerd Facebook group is the Friday poll. Oh, okay. Yes. Ask, you know, <laughs> a question. And, you get to tune in and uh, talk about how you feel about fishing. And uh, uh, the guy that does it is totally disreputable, but uh, he asks really good questions and uh, it's a lot of fun and it's growing week by week and we'd love to see it grow more. Yeah, we want to see that grow. Actually, what I, what I was hoping to do is see that poll grow into a segment of the show. So we'll be able to report on the poll results. Right now, we're not getting enough participation in those results, results to report. But if we start getting hundreds of people participating in those polls, we have a story to tell about some data. We'll have some fun stuff. But I do want to cycle back to Kickstarter. Kickstarter.com. Just look for the crappy dueler. And we will, of course, have links in the show notes for this week's show. And we'll be posting them uh, all over social media and at fishnerds.com because we want to see uh, you succeed, John. Now, do you, do you want to tell us what your goal is for this, what the, the dollar amount is? Uh, we're looking for $2,500. Oh, that's uh, pretty is low ball. We can do that. Yeah, yeah, it's a modest goal, but I'm not going to, um, you know, really ask for uh, more than we need. However, if we overfund, uh, we have plenty of plans. We've got a product called Slick Weights that we want to bring out. I'm always doing research and development. And um, there's this guy, um, you might know him. His name is Vinny. <laughs> and uh, he and I are always talking back and forth about lake trout baits and ice fishing. And I've been sitting here uh, coming up with a little uh, big, big size doodler. Maybe the lake trout doulers in the in the next uh, in the next pitch. But the the thing is, we've always got uh, we're a small company. Uh, we need a leg up sometime, and we sure appreciate if people come along and help us out. Yeah, and then we always tell people like we we want to see, see independent podcasts do well, like the Fish Nerds. We want to see independent uh, companies do well, like our printing company. We use, we use a local printer to make our um, our decals. We use. Uh, Backwoods Graphics from New Hampshire, small we love company. Backwoods Graphics. Yeah, we love Internet, those guys. Who was on the show now uses Backwoods Graphics. Yes, yeah, see, and and so those local small businesses, and now we want to see indie tackle companies do well as well. So support the local guys, support the small businesses. Really valuable. Really makes a difference. And of course, links we'll have them all for you. John, let's do some news. News, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves. All right, first news, and this actually comes from our guests today. Uh, our guests, we'll talk about them in a minute, but when I first met them, they were running a Kickstarter campaign to sell that was called Angler's Pint. It was actually Karen Talbot, who uh, is an artist, scientific illustrator, and she created this pint for anglers. It was a pint that was a little bit bigger than the rest of the pints because, you know, Yay. fishermen like to describe things as bigger than they are. And their Kickstarter campaign was so successful that they sold everything and now their pint glasses are sold in Orvis, right? So that's really big news. Oh but the, my God. Bi the bigger news is that uh, Angler's Pint uh, is always involved in the community and involved in uh, efforts to help other people. They give back. 
that's the value of small businesses. They can they they see the community needs. And so they are running a Hurricane Dorian Relief Recovery Program with Angler's Pints. So they've created a pint glass to help uh, raise money for the victims of Hurricane Dor- Dorian. Well, that's, um, that's fantastic. I mean, I hate to cut in here, but that yeah, is please fantastic cut in. because this is one of the most underreported stories right now. Mm-hmm. The devastation in the Bahamas is incredible. I mean, we're not talking houses... Uh, falling down. We're talking about islands who basically had every structure above ground, you know, stripped off the face of the earth and right. all the um, uh, crops and, and the, uh, the animals, especially like chickens and so forth as a main food crop there or main food uh, source there gone, absolutely gone. Yeah. It's, it's awful. Um, and it, you, I, you know about it. I, I don't watch the news very often. I, I'm busy working all the time. I've barely heard about it. It's not filtering down to the masses. You know, no, the information. it's not. It's not. And because it doesn't have to deal with a certain political situation, mm-hmm. it hogs up all the headlines at this point. We're not hearing a lot about a lot of things. But since this isn't a U.S. territory or anything like that, it's just a bunch of people that we all love to visit as tourists, but um, maybe put on the shelf when we're not there, uh, it's not getting the attention it deserves, not by a long shot. Right. And here's a great thing. So the English pint glasses are quality glass. I have a collection of them. I love them. I drink beer out of them. Uh, they, incidentally, they hold all kinds of liquids, not just uh, beer, just in case you, you know, if you drink milk, you can put that in it. Drink uh, but <laughs> if you drink milk, you can put that in your glass. You don't have to drink beer. That stuff that comes from a cow? I know. You can put cow juice in your cup. Uh, but anyway, they sell these. Uh, they're Actually, they're the, our limiting edition. It's going to be the Abaco Bonefish Angler's Pint. And the Abaco is an island in the Bahamas that, that got really destroyed by the storm. And so the bonefish is a popular tourist fish that people catch on the fly. Uh, and so if you go to anglerspint.com, you can link up uh, to, this, uh, to this fundraiser. 20 bucks for the pint glass. And they're really cool glasses. You're actually going to want to buy all the, the whole collection. But this one, 100% of their profits go directly to the relief fund. So get in there, give them your money. We'll put links up at fishers.com, of course, and we'll be talking about the Facebook group. Uh, I know it's self-serving because our guest is part of the English Pint family, but it's actually really important. And, you know, what, what better platform than us to make sure that you hear about our friends who are doing something good for the community? No better platform than us. No better. So that's story number one. Not much fun, <laughs> but important. Story and number two is a very serious. We're allowed to get serious. We are, but we can still laugh. We do. All right. Story number two from the Conway Daily Sun. This is my town, my local newspaper. And love the Daily Sun. I know they're ridiculous, but <laughs> no, I'm not. I, I actually look in on it now because I vote for this guide service sometimes <laughs> when they have a contest, and all of a sudden I'm getting all these emails from the Conway Daily Sun, mm-hmm. and they are one of the few papers where you can hear about the lead-free movement and the effect on loons and so on. They feel like it's important enough to report, and by golly, I'm going to support them, even yeah. though I'm out in the middle of nowhere. Well, it's, it's really great because uh, the, the, one of the uh, reporters is a fishing buddy of mine, and, so, and I'm friendly with all the other reporters as well because they're, 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 it's a local paper, and I'm a local media person, so we all kind of know each other. Uh, and w- there's a book you, you should read. It's called um, – oh, shit <laughs> – <laughs> the book with pages. I know. Give me a second. John. I got that one. I know. I'm going to come up with it. Uh, I'm going to edit this part a little bit. 
Uh, okay. oh, oh, it's called Three, Two. There's a book you should read called The Rise of the Creative Class. And one of the, they, they took it seven different functions. And they said, if you want to have a creative community that's a vibrant community, you need, a, you need seven different things. And one of those things was a free newspaper. Free newspapers are really a critical piece in a functioning, vibrant, artistic society. The Conway Daily Sun is a free paper. So they, they fill one of those pieces, which is nice. That's outstanding. Absolutely outstanding. Yeah. I know my daughter supports uh, a free paper. Um, you, you guys in the Northeast, no wonder all the, the hip kids grow up here in the Midwest, go to the Northeast, <laughs> and never come back. Thanks a lot. Uh, you're welcome. We're so fun. We're so fun. Although I enjoyed, I make fun of Kansas, but I had a great time when I visited Kansas. So, you know, it's just very flat. All right. So <laughs> the headline is Loon Deaths Prompt Reminder About Lead Fishing Tackle Ban. So there's been some new loon deaths. It's really important. From Mullenboro, New Hampshire, the Loon Preservation Committee and State Fish and Game Department want to remind anglers about the ban on lead sinkers and jigs weighing one ounce or less for all freshwater lakes in the state. The Loon Preservation Committee has already recorded two cases of lead poison loons through mid-June. In 2018, 18 loons were confirmed dead after ingesting lead singers in jigs up to 1.03 ounces. These loons were discovered on lakes and ponds across state Bristol, Conway, Dublin, Meredith, Montbrough, and a few others. One bird from a breeding parent, Squam Lake, was recovered from the ocean, and a loon will die from lead poisoning approximately two to four weeks after ingesting lead. I'm not going to read the rest of it, but here's the thing. We see loons every day when we're fishing. You're going to come visit. You're going to see these loons. Oh, yeah. Um, I, can't I don't know if you have loons in your in, – in, We, do. You, we do. We do. We have actually three different kinds, but they're not common like they are where you're at. Right. Well, they're coming back. They're getting stronger because of, of things like the lead band. Absolutely. And they're, they're beautiful. They're huge birds. And loons have, uh, have dense bones. And they have their legs are in the very back of their bodies, and they're terrible flyers and even worse walkers. They can yeah. barely walk. Um, and they, in fact, they build their nest right on the edge of shore so that they, if a predator comes, they can just roll into the water. Um, but they're fantastic divers. And, and they can go, you know, over 100 feet deep underwater for eight to 10 minutes if they have to. Uh, and they're good parents. And on, the, on Silver Lake in Madison, where I'm going to bring you in two weeks, John, uh, we've got a nesting pair and a baby. First baby I've seen on my lake make it to almost adulthood. It's almost full grown now. Oh. And it, it's delightful. I watch it from when it was a tiny fuzzball right around the back of its mom or dad to where it's now it's about ready to head out to the ocean. And they don't go very far. They fly from uh, our lake right over to the Atlantic Ocean, like Ogunquit, Maine, which is about probably an hour-long flight for them. And then they stay in the ocean, and they come back here to the same pond in the summertime. And what they do is, is they, you know, they're fish eaters, pescivores, right? And they go down the bottom of the lake, and they scoop up mouths full of gravel because they're digesting food in their, in their gizzard. And what happens is those little split shots we use when fishing, they're scooping those up, and those get in their gizzards, and it kills them. And they did a little study on these, on these loons. It turns out even one piece of lead will kill a loon. Even if they catch it and get it out of the loon within a day or two, the loon's going to die no matter what. They're really lead-sensitive. Well, so, everything is lead-sensitive because, as Zoe has told us, mm -hmm. lead is a neurotoxin. It is. And it only takes a particle the size of a grain of sand to have an effect on a human body. 
Mm -hmm. You up that to two grains and the effect becomes permanent and you may even start to show symptoms. So you can only imagine what that does on a creature the size of a loon. Right. So we're, we're encouraging to, of course, we want people to buy, John, we want them to buy your glass water lead-free lures, but we actually don't, we, we actually would prefer them just to buy lead-free lures no matter what, make that choice. I encourage them to buy lead-free lures no matter what. This is the whole thing. This is my whole problem with getting investors and this and that. They're all yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cause guy. Yeah, I want to make money, but really I just want to spark a movement. I want to spark a thing where people are going, hey, you know, I'm going to switch to lead-free because it's better for the wildlife. And I'm telling you right now, even if you don't care about wildlife, you just want to catch fish, lead-free alternatives work. They work as good as lead, and there's dozens of cases. Let's talk about tungsten weights. Let's talk about steel spoons. Let's talk about brass body spinners. Let's talk about all these different lead alternatives that do better than lead you don't need to fish with lead but we've got to make this stuff more accessible in terms of price and 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 you know talking to this this guy benny you know even where you live mm -hmm. finding everything you need to replace your lead tackle is a challenge right it's really challenging especially shopping online you know like in new hampshire theoretically you can't go and buy lead off the shelf anymore but once in a while you'll see it sneaking you know onto the shelves and Absolutely. then you look across the border into maine where their lead-free laws sound like any, as long as it's painted lead, it's fine. Yeah, they've gutted the law. New York's law is really weak. I'm really proud of New Hampshire and Massachusetts because they have the tough laws. Uh, but there's so many alternatives, so many other better ways to go than lead. So stop using lead. We know it's bad for you. And my favorite, I, I say this all the time, John, my favorite excuse people use is, I don't want to buy more fishing gear. Uh, it's a fake excuse. I've never met an angler who hates buying fishing gear. It's yeah, no, that, I said no angler ever. <laughs> ever, right, exactly. So, news, news, fish in the news. Everybody loves their fish in the news. Now to, um, to our conversation, not our conversation, to the conversation Doc Martin and Rhett Tablet had about, um, about catch and release fishing. So, a little background. Doc Martin is a professor at Emporia State University in Kansas, beautiful downtown <laughs> Emporia, Kansas. Beautiful. She's been she's been on this show longer than she's had any of her jobs, which is <laughs> pretty amazing. Uh, <laughs> and it's, interestingly, she even uses the fish nerds on her resume, which I find fascinating because I'm afraid to do that. Um, but she's proud of the work she does with us. She's she's a real good scientist. She's super duper smart. Uh, my daughter Zoe is really inspired by her. Zoe wants to be a college professor uh, in, in biology, and it's because of visiting Doc Martin in Kansas. I mean, truly inspirational, smart, good human. We like her a lot, love her. Uh, and then Rhett Talbot. Rhett Talbot's an award-winning freelance journalist who covers fisheries at the intersection of science and sustainability. His work can be found in publications such as Discover Magazine, Nat Geo, Manga Bay, Yale Environment, uh, he creates a Beyond Data podcast uh, and the Good Catch of Fisheries blog, centric blog. Uh, anyway, million places. And his wife uh, is one of the most amazing science illustrators I've ever seen, Karen Talbot. Um, and we'll have links up to all his work at fishnurse.com. He's also a friend of the show. And, yeah, and my favorite thing about Rhett, before I get too far, is, is he makes... Uh, he makes our uh, fly fishing correspondent go bonkers. Do you know our fly fishing correspondent? Oh, I love Rich Collins. Yeah, Rich Collins. And he makes Rich Collins crazy. Uh, Rich Collins is always messaging me, and he's saying, 
rat told me I'm holding that fish wrong again. And that makes him mad. And I love that. So I hope he keeps doing it. But here's the conversation that Rhett and Doc Martin had. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I want to gush too. I oh, mean, come on. I, I started as a fan of the show. That's true. <laughs> and I'm, I'm lucky to come on now and, and help be part of the show. And that's really flattering. Uh, I can't say enough about either of these people, but um, I've, uh, we all know Doc. We love Doc. She's on a lot. We can't get Rhett as much as we would like, but he's a big participant in the Facebook group page. And uh, this guy is so professional. Um compared to oh us everybody and, yeah and yeah he's he's amazing <laughs> he's bright he does it without being a jerk and Sometimes. um that you know i i <laughs> he makes me want to just sit still and listen because i'm i'm embarrassed of my own uh lack of thought process um i feel like i shouldn't even be driving a car you know after i listen to Rhett talbot because he has just you know you you had him do one on the char and the, the nth degree that he took the research about the char stocking and New Hampshire and Maine and where these char are left and these little ponds that these purebred char are still at. I'm just like, who does that? Who, you know, goes around and just, you know, buries themselves so deeply into this kind of stuff and then is able to translate it so well that you want to sit there and listen. I mean, I, I, I you know, some scholarly material, it's so dry it's like eating one of those turkey sandwiches like 11 days, you know, after Thanksgiving. and With no mayo. If yeah. yeah, if you weren't so drunk and hungry, you, you couldn't do it. But Rhett is, no, it's it's juicy, it's good, it's delicious. Uh, you're going to, I can't wait for the show to come out. No, wait, we're on the show. We'll the show is here. <laughs> All right, here's the combo. <laughs> Yesterday or the day before, I have no idea what day it is most of the time anymore. <laughs> so I posted and I asked a question to the fish nerds like, hey, is there something that you want to hear me talk about? And uh, fish nerd Brian McGilvra said, considering a recent post on here, I wonder about the 100% non-biased scientific studies done on fish survivability after being hooked, handled, and released. I think fish are tougher than what we think, but I would be interested to know. So I thought that was perfect timing. Absolutely. So um, I just thought I'd let you know that we do have some fans that want to hear about this. Great. Uh, Something, so for the fans listening out there, uh, Rhett and I have spoken a, a little bit back and forth via Messenger, and I know if you've made any of these posts, you might have gotten a comment from either Rhett or myself on the Fish Nerds podcast about the grip and grin. And so for those unfamiliar, the grip and grin is usually um, holding a fish not in the best way to make sure the fish is comfortable, to get a selfie. That's pretty much the premise of what we're going to talk about. And we're going to look at what the data says and why we think that maybe the grip and grin needs to go. I think the grip and grin needs to go. We'll find out if Rhett agrees with me or not. Um, so did I, did I summarize that pretty well? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, 
you know, I think with, with the grip and grin, I think that um, there's, a, there's a spectrum, as with most things. Um, yep. Few things, especially in fisheries, are binary, black and white. Um, there are certainly ways to do a quote-unquote grip and grin that are better, and there are ways to do a grip and grin that are not better or worse <laughs> right. um, for the fish, um, maybe not for the photograph. Um, so, so I think that's important. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, so, uh, you know, whenever I have this conversation, I try to separate it between, I have a personal ethic and then as somebody who is professionally engaged in fisheries and writes about fisheries and covers fisheries as a journalist, um, I also have an opinion there. Um, so as a professional who sort of covers fisheries, um, mm -hmm. It seems, it seems a bit pie in the sky to me and unrealistic to say that we're never gonna have pictures on the cover of fishing magazines again of a fish out of the water. Um, right. What doesn't seem unrealistic to me is that um, the, the industry and anglers who, and I'm gonna use one of Clay's favorite words here, um, anglers who are influencers. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, influencers, all right. <laughs> Um, when it comes to, you know, the cover of a magazine or somebody who's well-respected in the fishing community, um, mm -hmm. maybe for the right reasons, maybe not for the right reasons, but when they exhibit certain uh, practices, um, especially when it comes to poor fish handling, I think that, I think we can really make a dent there and I think we can change that. Um, right. And just if I can interrupt you for just a second, I think that that's the general, uh, my general feeling as well is you know, everybody wants to show off their fish, right? That's totally reasonable because you've worked really hard. You've spent time and money on gear and practicing and finding the right location and waiting to catch the fish, right? So you want to show people that you did it. And if you are an industry professional, showing people that you can catch a fish is probably a way you, that you get business, right? So if you don't have any fish pictures, people might be wondering, well, does this person that's going to take us out fishing, can they even catch fish? And that could be problematic for a business perspective for sure. But I think that you hit the nail on the head there where it's, it's not that you can't do it. It's the way in which it's done that I think is important. And so um, I think, yeah, we can talk about the pros and cons and some of the data behind proper and mishandling maybe. Yeah. Well, and, and I'll just interject too that, you know, I think that there are ways and there are some guides that are actually um, doing this, especially if you're guiding from a drift boat, for example, or from another boat, using a device like the Fotarium um, is a fantastic um, way to be able to take really good care of the fish, never remove it from the water. Um, and, you know, and, it's, and you can get a beautiful, beautiful photograph. Um, so that is one option. Yeah, and for the fans out there, what is a photarium, right? Uh, a photarium is basically an acrylic box. Um, and it's my understanding is that um, it, it's primarily, it's, its usage is, is science-based. Um, so you're able to observe and measure the length of a fish um, in this acrylic box filled with water. Um, but the Wild Fish Conservancy sells them also to anglers, um, and they're great to have on a boat. I've used them. I love them. Um, most of my fishing, and I, and I, in case in case people aren't clear, um, I am a, an avid fly angler. My wife and I both are. Um, uh, you know, so we usually wade fish. So we're generally not carrying around an acrylic box on our back when we're wade fishing. Um, but you know, when you're drift boat fishing, it's a fantastic way to be able to 
um, observe a fish yourself and take a great picture of it and then release it. And also with the technology of, you know, of, of underwater photography now, um, it's so simple and cheap that a lot of people um, do photograph their catch without even removing it or just right at the water level without risking their, their photography gear. And that's, that's another great option. Um, I also wanted to just back up a second because I said that, you know, I had sort of a professional opinion and a personal opinion. Mm. My, per my personal ethic has evolved, I think, like anyone's does. Um, back in the mid to late 90s, um, I was working as a fly fishing guide. And, um, and I had actually written a piece back then for Fly Fisherman magazine um, entitled Catch and Kill, a Conservation Ethic, um, in which I had um, advocated for the idea that not necessarily we should kill every fish we catch, but rather that um, harvesting a limited number of fish and then leaving the river could be as strong a conservation ethic as the person who catches and releases 20 or 30 fish over the course of a day, especially in trying circumstances. And the, the, um, the narrative in which I set that article was fishing in the winter for brown trout in Wyoming when, you know, catch and release is really rough on these guys. They don't have a lot of energy. They need to reserve it to catch food. And so making them chase and then go through a fight um, for something that's artificial and not going to sustain them really can have some serious consequences. And so the catch and release angler who thinks that, and maybe not for, maybe not by their own fault, but who thinks that they're being very conservation minded because they didn't take a single fish home, but maybe caught and released 10, 15 fish that day. Um, and if I went to that same river and spent less time, caught one fish, took it home for dinner, um, my hook mortality at the end of the day may actually be significantly less than theirs. But because they don't see it, um, they don't necessarily, that doesn't compute. Yeah, I think that's a really good point is just because you let the fish go doesn't mean it's going to survive. Um, it might look really great when you put it in the water, but it doesn't take, um, it depends on the fish. Some fish are a little bit hardier than others. That was in the comment from the Facebook fan that we had, but there are definitely different conditions that can cause more harm. I know temperature is one you mentioned. That's a really big one. So if it's too hot or it's too cold, um, then that can really change the outcome of the mortality of the fish that you catch and release. Absolutely. Yeah. Temperature is huge. So personally, as an angler though, you know, I, I've actually thought about going back to fly fishermen and saying, let's say update that article 20 years later. And mm -hmm. because things have changed and I was fishing primarily in the Rocky Mountains at the time, um, in some pretty healthy fisheries at the time. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a whole lot different when you're fishing um, a, a stream where maybe you only have a native population, it's not stocked. Um, you know, th those fish, um, you know, they, they, there's much more, they, there can be much more vulnerability in certain populations of fish and you want to be a lot, yes. um, and you, you want to be careful with, with some fish over, over other fish. Um, but my own personal ethic since then has evolved. I don't think I've posted a fish picture. Um, I, I'm, I, <laughs> I should go back and check my social media before I say this, but I don't think I've posted a, a fish picture since, you know, the 2005, 2006. And that's just kind of where my ethic has gone. And, and um, I enjoy posting pictures of the rivers that I'm fishing sometimes. Um, my wife is a professional scientific illustrator. Um, so she actually 
most commonly works from specimens. So we do um, we do photograph specimens sometimes for her work, um, but I'm very conscious personally about posting those online because again, I think it sort of sets an expectation. Um, and, and you know, and I just, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't feel the need to do that. Sure. So, um, let's say that it was still the nineties and you were still doing fly fishing guiding. Do you think that that would maybe change your opinion? Because if you were still guiding, maybe you would have to feel obligated to post some pictures to get folks to sign up to have you be their guide. Do you think that'd make a difference? Well, I mean, the difference, I think one big difference at the time was where I was doing most of my guiding um, were places where there were incredibly abundant populations and even yeah. stocked populations or remnant stocked populations um, in high altitude bodies of water um, where catch and kill was, and these were also most of my guiding was in a backcountry context. So we were out in the field for sometimes weeks at a time. Um, mm -hmm. And so we were eating fish. So obviously when you are uh, harvesting fish for consuming, um, <laughs> you know, taking a picture of that fish is fine. I do, you know, I do find it interesting though. Like, so this is something that I find really interesting. Um, I see all the time and this is, we're talking about harvesting for consumption here. Let's say you catch a nice big bluefin tuna, you get back to the dock, you hoist it up on a davit and you take a picture standing next to it. Mm -hmm. Somehow that seems to be um, acceptable and, and, um, and appealing to many people. Whereas I don't think I've ever seen anybody, um, you know, have a picture of a cow hung up um, you know, before they're going to go eat a hamburger. So it's very, it, I think just our relationship with fish, uh, tends to be pretty different than it is with other food we consume. And that makes sense. I mean, fish essentially the last wild food that we eat. You know, that is actually really interesting because when you bring up, you know, we don't do that with a cow, um, I, maybe because they're everywhere, right? So nobody cares. We take it for granted, but people do that with deer, so there's yeah. another kind of hunting thing, like you, you put the work in, so you want to show off what you've done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, and that's where hunting, I mean, hunting has gotten a pretty significant backlash there. And I've certainly had conversations. I mean, I used to hunt um, when I lived in Wyoming. Um, I certainly have had lots of conversations with hunters as well, who also have sort of their own ethic has, uh, moved as well and they are less apt to take a picture with an animal they've killed today um, but other people do and I think yeah you're right part of it is that it, the experience the work that went into it and and you want to show it off yeah you're, you're proud of yourself which I think is acceptable if you're doing everything the way that you should be then you are allowed to be proud of that thing so yeah and I think, and I do think in the public's mind too, um, the line between sort of trophy hunting and supplements mm -hmm. hunting get blurred. Um, so I think that some people may feel very strongly about a hunter posing with a trophy that they're not going to consume, um, yeah. but they just are posing with this to show that they killed this animal, which is different than a hunter that may be posing with a deer and they're going to use every piece of that deer that they possibly can. Yes, I th we'll have to have a conversation about trophy hunting on another another day. Because <laughs> there's some really interesting uh, stuff out there that might surprise some people and might not surprise others, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. 
No, and you know, I, I think I know what you're alluding to, and and we we can have that exact same conversation. I think we should have that same conversation with fishing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, do the I think the question that we need to ask ourselves, and certainly the narrative that a lot of conservation organizations promote actively, not just in fishing, but sort of in wilderness conservation across the United States, um, is this notion that uh, using the resource is best for the resource. Um, So in the context of fishing, uh, more anglers means uh, means a, a better resource, a healthier resource, means healthier fish stocks, healthier ecosystems. Um, and that's a narrative that is uh, very commonly promoted by conservation organizations. Yeah. So, yeah, if you have more money, people are paying for fishing licenses and or fishing gear, however that money is coming in, then in turn that's used by these hatcheries or conservation groups to, to do something with the bodies of water. Um, it's interesting that you did uh, break apart, you know, healthy stocks versus healthy environment because um, those two are not always mutually exclusive. Um, but I would say a lot of the times they tend to be if you are stocking an ecosystem with stuff that maybe isn't naturally occurring there, which is another loaded term. Uh, is that ecosystem really healthy? Is that, is that really doing that system a favor? Yeah. And so when we look at um, license fees and we look at other fees that hunters and, and anglers, let's just restrict it to anglers for the purpose of this conversation, when those fees are collected, you know, where do they go? And, you know, in a lot of states, I live in Maine, in the state of Maine, um, we have a huge hatchery program and the state puts non-native fish sometimes on top of native fish. Um, although, it seems like, again, they're making, pro- the state's making progress, but, you know, I don't necessarily want my dollars for my fishing license to go to uh, stocking brown trout on top of brook trout. Um, you know, I, that's not something I want. And, um, but we've managed our fisheries at the state level and also at the federal level since the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, primarily, I mean, they're called fish and game departments in many states. Um, you know, the idea is to create a recreational opportunity more than creating a healthy ecosystem. Um, so, you know, I think many fish and game departments today are having a much more robust conversation about conservation and about healthy ecosystems. Um, but, there is well over a century of history that, um, that, you know, I was going to say needs to be fixed. I don't even know if it can be fixed. Mediated perhaps is a better word. Yeah. Yeah. Mediated is a safer word for sure. (laughs) Cause a lot of, uh, I think of another argument that I hear is, well, if we don't stock this body of water, then there won't be anything there. Um, right. And I mean that, that might be true, but is that acceptable? I mean, is that, is that an acceptable reason to continue doing something that you know is not what that habitat was originally all about? Right. I don't have the answer to that. <laughs> we're also seeing, we're, I mean, in, in Maine at least, um, we're also seeing um, anglers' habits changing. Um, mm-hmm. Anglers, uh, and this is a gross generalization, but uh, anglers generally are more focused on short trips close to home than long trips further afield oh, um, in Maine today. And so that has certainly had an effect on the way the state manages water. So the southern half of the state, the, the you know, the state does 
um, manage waters for recreational benefit where people can get out and fish, you know, after work or on the weekend. Um, you know, they don't necessarily do that up north where you've got to go like we're going this coming week. You know, we'll be out for a week in Arctic brook char, or, um, Arctic char waters and brook trout waters. Um, but that's not a place where you're just going to go after work. Um, and the state has increasingly um, put more measures in place to protect those bodies of water, water further north, which is which is really important. Sure. So um, I'm going to I'm going to switch gears just a little bit here. So yeah. um, in in your perusal of all of the scientific data about the mortality of fish handling, um, I think in in my view, a lot of that has been with sport fishes, of course, because those are the ones people are actually fishing for, although microfishing has taken off. And so that's a whole other thing that I'm not sure if we're going to get to talk about today. So... Do you think there's any reason that the data out there on mortality rates of handling would be skewed in any way to make, to make it seem like it's more of a problem than it really is? I mean, you know, we're getting into a much larger cultural issue now. I mean, obviously, when you're looking at any scientific literature, um, you know, you want to go into it with the assumption, you know, this better than anybody based on, you know, some of what you teach. Um, sorry, my cat is here. Hi, Didion. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so we want to assume that when we go, when we read a scientific paper and we see a statistic in that scientific paper, we want to think that it is unbiased uh, data. And, um, we both know that that's not always the case. <laughs> right. And increasingly, the onus is, is upon, you know, the consumer of those data mm -hmm. um, to, to try to assess, you know, how reliable or how credible. Um, right. So, you know, when you have a study that's been commissioned by somebody that has an interest in the study turning out one way or another, um, that certainly makes you potentially more skeptical of the data. Um, right. When it comes to, like, when it comes to hook mortality data, which is, um, mm -hmm. you know, which is what I'm always looking for. I, I don't think there are good data out there. Um, certainly not comprehensive data that can just, you know, reduce this whole discussion down to read this paper and now we know. Um, right. th there's just too many variables based on species, temperature, gear that's being used. Um, how many times has that fish been caught and released? Um, is it catch and release waters? Is it catch and harvest waters? I mean, there's, there's so many different um, components that go into it. So I do know that most states, I won't say all states because I haven't talked to all states. I do know that most states, though, when they go ahead and um, set their... Um, their harvest limits, um, they do make an assumption about a certain percentage of fish that are released not surviving. Um, and I think my experience has been in speaking with individual managers at the state level in individual states, um, they, that number tends to be somewhere between 10 and 20% that they just assume um, and I shouldn't say they just assume. Some of that is based on the data at which they're looking. Um, some of it may be based on anecdote or firsthand experience, but they're assuming that 10 to 20% of the fish that are released are not going to make it. And they factor that into their harvest um, quota. And I was wondering on the 10 to 20% that aren't going to make it, um, are those stocked fish that you're talking about? 
again, I think that just gets super. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, because, because in reality, um, you know, many States there, there isn't that, you know, there isn't that, um, that degree of, um, of, of nuance in terms of how the regulations are written. You know, it's not like, well, these brook trout that have been stocked have a different quota than these brook trout that have not been stocked. Um, now they do have different, there is nuance in terms of the bodies of water. Um, they could say, you know, this body of water, you know, this week, my wife and I will be traveling up to the Dabuli region in Maine, um, and we'll be posting some state heritage fish signs um, mm-hmm. on behalf of the Native Fish Coalition and the state and the Sportsman's Alliance in Maine. Um, we'll be up there posting those signs to help anglers to actually realize that in these bodies of water, we have self-sustaining population of brook trout. Um, There are no hatchery fish in these waters, and we really need to care for these waters um, in a way that, you know, that that isn't the way we care for some other waters down south. Um, So, you know, so, so I, th- you know, state fisheries managers, I don't envy their job. I mean, they, you know, it's a very, very, very challenging job, but to get back to your initial question, you know, I, you know, that 10 to 20% um, seems to be supported by some of the literature. Um, but, you know, we get well above that when we get into, um, you know, cold water fish and when the, when the temperature of the water hits a certain point, um, for the species, that hook mortality can just go through the roof um, within a degree of difference. And, um, and you know, winter is another issue, you know, how much um, these fish can really put into surviving the winter. Um, you know, gear is a huge one. I think, I think if, you know, people often ask me, well, what would you change in fishing? And I would say, well, I'd like to get rid of the grip and grin. Um, but in addition to that, the next thing I'd like to change is I'd like to change people, you know, finding it sporty to fish for species on light tackle or tackle that's too light for that species. Um, and so when you combine that with this hook mortality discussion, um, we see, you know, I see people all the time on rivers that are, you know, fighting a fish for way longer than they need to fight a fish. And Sometimes that's just because they think it's fun. Sometimes it's because their gear's too light. Um, but it's certainly that is another factor that boosts that hook mortality statistic dramatically. Sure. And um, so I know one of the things that I, I've always heard. So the, here's here's your rumor mill for the day um, is that circle hooks are the answer and all other hooks are bad. That's a very crude way of saying it, but that's kind of, you know, the, the talk that I get to hear colloquially from folks. And uh, do you have any comments about the difference between circle hooks versus other kinds of um, hooks? Yeah, I mean, I, I think where that's become the most, um, the most uh, obvious recently is in the striped bass fishery. Um, and there's some, there, there have been some, some data that have been released, um, recently that have really shown that the recreational striped bass fishery has had a much greater impact on the overall population than was previously thought. And, um, and a lot of that does get right back to, to gear and, um, and circle hooks has been a big part of that conversation. Um, so, so certainly, you know, and, you know, and, and again, though, you know, it, you, you try not to make this too complicated too, because, um, you know, you have to remember, I think that 
the vast majority of people who who are anglers, and that is people who might go out once a year, twice a year, um, you know, maybe once a month. Um, you know, this is something they're doing in their recreational time. They're probably really busy. They've got all the same stresses that everybody else has in their life, whether that be, you know, money or family or work or whatever it might be. When they go fishing, it's supposed to be a time to relax. And so all of a sudden, if your fishing becomes like you have to, you know, you really have to think about your gear you're using, your technique you're using, where you're fishing, uh, doing your own research into whether the data are credible or not. All of a sudden that, you know, couple hours of recreation um, sort of loses its appeal. Um, so I think trying to really simplify things and not get too into the weeds um, can really help. And so something like talking about proper fish handling, I think is a really great place to start because as you know, you said at the beginning of this conversation, people love to show that picture of the fish they caught. So what can we do as a community to try to make sure that, you know, if people are going to be uh, photographing the fish they caught, how can we um, ensure that they're doing that in a way that decreases hook mortality as much as possible? And being conscious about how you hold the fish is free. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to do anything else. It's just a little, you just have to take a little bit more time to be a little bit more conscientious. <laughs> but you know, it, it's so interesting. I mean, so you go to bass, for example, and for, for years, you know, the bass fishing community has got that lipping a bass thing as, mm -hmm. you know, they've, it's been on the cover of enough magazines. It's been on enough social media posts. People that anglers respect um, have a big smiling picture with lipping a bass um, and so people just assume, well, that's what I, I'm supposed to do. You know, mm -hmm. that's what, that's what the expectation is. Um, and not acknowledging that, you know, you're, you're probably doing some serious damage to that fish, um, by, by not holding it well, but how do you know, unless somebody's told you, and I guess that's where, so that, that's where it's become really interesting to me on social media. Um, you know, you see all the time in the fly fishing forums, you see people post pictures of poor fish handling. Um, some of those people are trolls and they just want to drum up a, a you know, a, a firestorm. Right. But a lot of those people are posting a picture that they don't know is poor fish handling. And so then when people start to comment about that, that's poor fish handling, some of those people comment in a way that's really obnoxious and sort of piling on and not assuming, not, you know, not taking an educational approach to it. Um, and then, and then you get this weird backlash where anyone who says anything about poor fish handling all of a sudden becomes the target of, mm -hmm. of animosity then. It's almost so, uh, like a mob mentality. When stuff yeah. starts to go south on those pictures, yes. <laughs> We've got to find a way to have that conversation. And I think it starts with people who are educated, um, you know, just demonstrating, you know, demonstrating what good fish handling looks like in all of their photographs. Um, right. Like, hey, this is possible. This is not inconvenient because it really is not that inconvenient in comparison to a lot of other things. And it's just... Uh, it's a good practice to say, hey, not only do I care about the fish, you know, I'm still having fun. You know, this right. is fun. This is not ruining my good time. I'm not, I can't not catch the largemouth bass, right? You, it's just showing how to handle it properly and then releasing it and doing everything else exactly the same. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I think, you know, the, the big things for people to keep in mind is, 
you know, I mean, I would adore it if everybody adopted a policy where they wanted to always keep their fish wet, um, you know, where they never wanted to remove them from the water. It's very easy to remove the vast majority of, of hooks, um, particularly in fly fishing, um, mm-hmm. from the fish without even removing the fish from the water. But if you are going to remove from the water, make sure your hands are wet. Don't lift it very far in the water. Support its entire body um, and get it back in the water as soon as possible. And if people just follow those very simple um, ideas, um, you know, I think we would, I think we would, I think we'd be moving in the right direction. Well, of course I, I agree with that. So <laughs> you, you, you sold me, but I think I was an easy sell, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, you know, and, and you know, we're, we're in a place in the world right now where everybody feels entitled to have their own set of data, right? Um, yes. So where people can <laughs> say, well, well, actually, you know, the data show that um, that fish are much hardier than than we think they are. And then, you know, the other side will say, well, actually, you know, the data show that, you know, up to 76 percent or 80 percent of fish die after being handled. And, you know, neither of those are true. Again, it's we're in the gray area. percent. Yeah, neither one is false, but neither one is true because it's only a, a portion of the whole picture. Because there's right. so many variables that say, well, yeah, sometimes mortality could be 80 or 90%. If you're out fishing in the dead of winter and it's freezing sleet and you rip a fish and you've had it going on for fighting for hours and hours, then that one's probably going to die. And so are all the rest that you catch like that. But if you're fishing in a good temperature with good gear and you're being conscientious, then the fish mortality is probably very insignificant. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And, you know, some species, like we've mentioned several times already, are just more tolerant than others. So that just goes into it. Some are naturally not going to be as affected and others will. Right. Right. So, but, you know, again, it just comes back to, I think, uh, you know, I, I would love to, I would love to know, and this is something that would be great to sort of hear from listeners and to have a dialogue about this. Like, how do we have this conversation on social media without it turning into just, you know, the sort of mob mentality or just, you know, a a worthless conversation because people are just throwing insults at each other. How do we, how do we address somebody who, you know, posts a picture that has poor fish handling and how do you say like, Hey, that's poor fish handling. You may not have known it. Um, Here's why it's poor fish handling. You know, it's awesome that you're out there fishing. It's awesome that you care about the resource, you know, Yep. How, how do you have that conversation? Um, yeah, and I guess another one is, you know, um, maybe if I'm the one that's posting the photos and someone would comment that to me, how should I respond to a criticism like that? Right? Because there's, there's always criticism every time you do anything public. <laughs> so if you're, you're posting something um, online to be read or whatever you're doing, there's always someone that's going to kind of rain on your cake a little bit. So well, how, do you, how do you deal with that kind of criticism? Um, I think in, in general, um, a lot of people like to shut down because it's just you've posted something and you're proud of it. And getting that criticism is really, it just hurts your feelings. You know, it just, it takes a little stab at that ego and it just makes you feel bad, Um, which is totally normal. I think that's what most people respond to a criticism like that, especially if it's something that they're proud of that they do for their recreational time, right? It's a big deal for these people and, you know, maybe for myself. So if you're on the receiving end of that criticism, 
know, what are things that you can think about instead of shutting down or, you know, sassing back, as they say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that it comes down to, and that this isn't just a conversation about fishing. It comes down to sort of, you know, life in general. And, you know, I think, you know, it would be ideal if everybody was completely open to criticism, <laughs> but you know, <laughs> wouldn't it, <laughs> I think, you know, it's probably more common that people are not particularly open to criticism. I think, I think, you know, as a scientist like yourself or as a science writer, which is what I do, um, you know, I feel like, I feel like we almost by default um, want to hear criticism because that's the way we move forward. We hear criticism, we, we think about it, we respond in a way that's like, oh, I hadn't thought about that angle or I hadn't seen those data. Um, now, here's, here's, here are these other data, let's look at these together and let's have a dialogue and a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that's by default the way that most of social media occurs. Yeah, and I, I also think that learning to accept criticism and differentiating between constructive and non-constructive criticism is a big deal. And that, that helps a lot with being able to accept the criticism in and of itself. So uh, you're right. Like I, I get criticism all the time on, you know, podcasting stuff or papers that I write or teaching methods or whatever. Sometimes the students like to criticize me during lecture, you know, <laughs> whatever. And when you, when I hear that, I've learned to filter the things that are just someone being a jerk because you can tell, right. Um, versus someone who is saying, Hey, I didn't understand this or the thing that you said isn't right and here's why. And taking that kind of constructive criticism and then reflecting on what I has said what I have said or how I think about things and knowing that in general the person providing that kind of constructive criticism is not mad at me. They're not disappointed. They don't hate me. Um, It's just something where, you know, I am missing something and this is my opportunity to learn something new. And I think that that's a really great way to look at criticism Um, is constructive criticism, which I always like to put that caveat in front, constructive criticism. You don't have to listen to the crappy criticism. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. So having that conversation, I think, is just is is you know just having the conversation, whether mm-hmm. it's about fishing or anything else, is is so important. And sure. you know, I mean, there are people who are you know I try to also keep in mind that there are people who are just fried. They feel like they've been having this conversation over and over and over again. They feel like you know the world's going to hell, whatever. And um, they see a picture and they have a visceral response and they just spout it out and you know crush somebody. <laughs> who, you know, didn't do it intentionally, didn't really, you know, there, there would, have been, would have been a better way to deliver that message. Right. And yeah. so it's incumbent on both. It's incumbent upon the person who's on the receiving end to, you know, really say, okay, is this constructive criticism? And, you know, what can I take away from this? And how can I respond to it in a way that moves the dialogue forward? But mm-hmm. there's also the person who's uh, delivering the criticism, you know, how do they deliver right. it? You know, the feedback sandwich. Yes. And, a lot of the time what you don't see on social media is 
that how that person's day has gone, right? So if you're the person and you woke up late and you didn't have time to shower and then you got in your car and you spilled the cup of coffee on you and you get to work to check your email and something's gone wrong or you forgot to do something and then you see the picture and you just want to explode because that's, that's I get that, right? Um, the trick is t- to not let yourself explode, and that's really hard. And you know, or if you're the person that you've had a really bad day, and you know all these things are going wrong, and you finally got to go fishing, and you got this really nice photo, and you feel so good about it, and you post it, and then you know, you've had this bad day, so you post the nice picture. But the person that spilled the cup of coffee sees that, and they're like, "How dare you handle that fish that way?" Then that's just probably the the worst way that you can go about having a conversation <laughs> is just two people at the end of their rope, just just trying to get by, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, so and, and the mood. You know, the only thing that I add to this is I think that um that it's really um you know, those people who are in a position of, I was going to use the word leadership, um, those people who are influencers like Clay, um, (laughs) but people (laughs) people who, you know, people who are identified by their audience as being um, reputable, cool, in the know, whatever it might be, I I think fortunately or unfortunately, the onus is, there's more onus upon them. Um, to to make sure that um, you know that they're that that they are continually promoting um, you know good fish handling in the case of this conversation, um, and I think sometimes you know it's it, that seems unfair. That might feel unfair. It might feel unfair that you know that I can't post a picture ever. You know, if my the fish <laughs> jumped when I was doing my grip and grin and my finger got into the gill you know, that I shouldn't post that picture, even though it was an amazing fish. And that's the only picture I have of that fish. My own personal ethic there would be, well, I don't post pictures of fish anyway, but my own personal ethic there would be, well, I'm not going to post that picture because, you know, other people are going to see that and say, well, you know, Rhett does that. So, it, you know, it's probably fine. I want to do just what Rhett does. So. <laughs> not recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think we've, we've been talking about this for a while now. Um, is there any, uh, any other last minute thoughts here that you have? I, I think just, you know, keep it simple. It's, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you are going to take grip and grins, you know, and we, I don't even, you know, if you're going to take pictures of your fish out of the water, um, you know, I think grip and grin sometimes has that pejorative um, associated with it. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're going to take pictures of your fish out of the water, then just, think about it and, you know, keep the fishes, keep the fish wet if possible. If you're going to lift them out of the water, make sure your hands are wet. Um, make sure that you're taking that picture quickly. You're supporting the fish. Well, you're getting that fish back into the water, making sure that it's revived before you're releasing it. And, um, you know, I think if everybody did that, um, I think we'd be, you know, on our way to, um, to a better, um, fishing community. Okay. And, um, just my last minute talk is if you can't remember the fans out there, you can't remember how to treat your fish. Um, our con- Rhett and I's conversations have inspired me to write a song. So I think we're probably going to play that after this clip gets out. So then you can hum it to yourself. So you remember how to treat a fish. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Rhett, that's all I've got. Cool. Well, thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, this is great, and, um, well, I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 
Sounds good. This episode is brought to you by the Fish Nerds Guide Service. Do you have a family? Do you have friends? Do you like fun? Do you like fish? If you said yes to any of these things, or just one of them, then you should do more things, uh, like go fishing with us. We offer a full-service fishing pro- program year-round in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. In the winter, you can come ice fishing with us and be cold and try your luck at the hardest lake in New Hampshire, on Silver Lake, trying to catch a lake trout, or head down to one of our smaller ponds and catch white Persian crappie all winter. In the summer, we offer pontoon boat fishing, tubing, swimming, and all the fun. And starting in summer 2020, uh, Vinny, our lead fly fishing guide, will be offering fly fishing with the Fish Nerds trips out on his favorite rivers in the White Mountains. So lots of fun. Fishnerds.com for pricing and uh, information. And it's a lot of fun. And John King, the crappy hippie, is coming fishing with us in two weeks. And I could not be more excited about this. Me neither. I can't wait. Yeah. John is convinced he can take on Silver Lake, the worst lake in New Hampshire. So uh, I'm, I'm down, baby. I'm down. I need, I need a bunch of T-shirts to say, suck it, Silver Lake. Or I got skunked on Silver Lake. I'm going to tell a quick story here. Then we're going uh, <laughs> to wrap this show up. But really quickly, um, <laughs> This past weekend, we were fishing on Silver Lake. I had clients out, and we were, you know, we were getting just beaten up by the fish, uh, having a hard time. We caught some fish, but didn't do didn't do great. And there was a huge bass fishing tournament, and uh, some pretty prominent prominent anglers. Um, there's a lady who fishes uh, called Amy J, the Bass Lady. Uh, she's part of the Filthy Anglers Group, and she was fishing there. And uh, but but around lunchtime, I, I was taking a pee break. And I was watching two bass boats, very sparkly boats, come out of the water with these 250-horsepower motors on them. And I said, you guys quitting? And they go, Clay, you guide here, right? And I said, sure. Do fish live in this lake? <laughs> <laughs> and these are pros. I mean, these guys are sponsored. They got sparkly boats and everything. And I felt like, you know, I would have caught bass today <laughs> if I was bass fishing. So yeah, I, I, felt, I felt good. It is all good, and I think your shtick is fantastic because it's about the fun. Yeah. And I've got this little saying, I say, weigh your fish by the fun and not the ton because, you know, you're going to go out on the fish nerd's barge, and you're going to have a good time. Um, it's, uh, you know, and I'm only doing this vicariously just from the posts and so on, but uh, I can't imagine if I was doing a family uh, visit to New Hampshire, you couldn't do better than go out with Fish Nerds Guide Service. And if the kids are whining, oh, gee, Dad, do we have to keep doing this? Next thing you know, Clay's throwing the tubes overboard and saying, hey, no, we don't have to do this. Let's just drag around for a while and get wet and giggle and scream and, and remember a good day. Yep, it's all about fun on the boat. So, but we do like catching fish too. I don't want to well, downplay the fun of catching you've a fish. Good. You've got, you've led some people to some, you got that kid into a seven pounder that one time and yeah. you, you know, you managed to catch those Lakers in the summertime. I'm just like, yeah, hey, you're pulling it. a rabbit out of a hat there, brother. I wouldn't even know where to start. Uh, me, I, I'm, I'm figuring it out, but we're getting better every time. So <laughs> we have fun and, and several lakes cool because it is, uh, it's one of only uh, three pristine lakes in New Hampshire. It's a lake that does not have invasive plants in it and has a 22 foot clarity. You can see down 22 feet deep in it. 
and it's the second, third deepest lake in the state, 164 feet deep. So it's a pretty, pretty neat place. And it's all created by glacial runoff. So it has these deep crevasses in it. And it's a really unique uh, bottom structure. So it's fun. Hey, fun crevasse is, is how you say crevice in Canada. Crevasse. Yeah, and do you know the poet E.E. E. Cummings? Yes, I do. So he, he, he grew up on that lake. Oh, really? Yeah. In fact, uh, when you come on the water, I'll show you where his house is. It's still there. So, and he died in North Conway, New Hampshire at, at our local hospital where my kids were born. So, wow. Yeah. And uh, Grover Cleveland used to party on our lake. Oh, we know Grover loved New Hampshire. Yep. He dug it. Yeah. He retired in Tamworth, New Hampshire, where I got married. So a lot of fun. <laughs> so anyway, book your trip with us. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll fill you on in. Uh, next up, we got a bonus song. Doc Martin uh, and uh, Rhett and I think a few of our listeners uh, have put together a, uh, a little song uh, called Stop in the Name of Fish. And uh, we're going to play that for you. <laughs> and it's delightful. <laughs> right on. Right on. i 
All right. You've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when you could have been out fishing. Is that what you All want? Right. That's what I want. Big fat thanks to Rhett Talbot, Doc Martin, and the crappie hippie for being part of this podcast. I mean, I'm going to tell you a quick sidebar here. Is, is there been a few times in the last few years where I've been ready to shut the show down and stop making it? And, and I would say Doc Martin, Rhett Talbot, but really uh, you, crappy hippie, um, inspire me to keep doing this show. Little things like a message here and there, a quick text. All those things help lift me up and bring me on and get me really excited about the show again. I'm really fired up for what's coming in the next year with the show. I've got a lot of cool ideas. So, so hold on to your seats because the show is going to grow. It's going to get better. It um, is. And I really appreciate you being part of this, John. Well, I appreciate the show being here because, like I say, I discovered it one night. I'm putting together tackle. I'm wondering what the hell am I doing. Uh, I go from being a uh, firebrand crusader to wondering, you know, is this ridiculous? And all I have to do is reach back and know that I got the fish nerds on my side and nothing uh, puts bullets back in my gun like that. That's cool. <laughs> Thanks to Wally Pleasance and Diana's Bath Salts for the musical interludes during the show, our intro to uh, the show and to uh, Fish in the News because we all love Fish in the News. Everyone loves it. And until next time, follow the code of the fish nerds, spawn early, spawn often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached. And swim against the corner every chance you get. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds. Fish nerds. Fish nerds. It's a podcast. Just for the halibut. Fry it in a basket or broiled in a pan. Eat it raw like you're in Siam. Fish nerds. Fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast.